Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Tis the happy song. Sorry. Hello, my indestructible friends, and welcome to episode 3-255 of the Run Run Live podcast. How are you doing? I'm running on a little sleep deprivation here, but I'm trying to squeeze this in for you. Hey, we're into five episodes for this new format, so shoot me a note. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think. I kind of like being able to go on a bit longer in the interview and to get a tad more structured on some of the pieces. And it's dang nice of you to let me air out my thoughts. Today, we have a good chat with Matt, who has one of the most interesting stories of life changes that I've come across yet. It starts with the brutal murder of his mother and his descent into a life of drugs and weirdness in the 1970s. But he saw the light. He climbed out of it, and he's now an ultra runner and a happy balance guy. He was nice enough to open up and chat about all this in his new book called Life Song, and that's what he and I chat about. I have been training really well. I've had some promising workouts, and I'm quite hopeful about this current campaign and my recovery. And at some point, I'll have to write up a summary piece and sort of my final thoughts on plantar fasciitis because it is a bugger. So in the two weeks since we last chatted after the Derry 16-miler, I've had some very inspiring workouts that are just that you know just super sweet after the challenges I've been through over the last 18 months. I tell you, I'll tell you, I continue to tell you, that I'm amazed at the ability of the human body to recover. A year ago, I basically had to walk the Boston Marathon. Six months ago, I took the first tentative mile runs in the woods with Buddy, and if I can keep up this progress, I could be requalified by the end of April. I do have the extra advantage of experience and knowing what is possible, but still, there are lessons aplenty. You've got to be patient, you can't give up, and you have to believe in yourself. Before it snowed again, we got a nice cold, dry snap, and the trails were clear, and Buddy and I did an eight-mile surge run, and it was wonderful. The surges felt effortless, like I was flying, and then later that week, I was forced onto the treadmill by the weather, but I absolutely nailed a step-up run, and I'm going to share that revelation with you in section two today. For our life balance section, I'm going to tell a story and talk about the nature of change. And I sense that I've gotten a little too proscriptive, maybe even on the verge of pedantic. And I'm going to try to move back towards less telling and more storytelling. (laughs) I'm super busy with travel this week. We got two to three feet of snow at my house over the weekend. And one of my workouts was four to six hours of moving snow. So put down your shovels and pay close attention, my chummies. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. 
The critical nature of change in your life, or, subtitle, <laughs> How I Learned to Love the Leap of Faith. I was reading an interesting post in Facebook last week, and I liked it. I loved it because it supported my thoughts on the nature of change. So in this post, this person, one of the people on my Facebook thingy, asked a question. They asked whether they should change jobs. The new job would pay less and be father to drive, but the people at the old job were mean and it was awful. And that's how the question was posed. Two choices. Stay at the old job, move to the new job. People chimed in with their opinions. Some said, tough it out, bank the pay. Better the devil you know and all that. Others said, make the move. Go to a happier place. Be true to yourself. I, of course, was a wise guy, like I always am, and said, consider the third way. Today, I want to walk you through three things. First, the nature of change, and then secondly, how change is really just transition between states in your life balance. And thirdly, the third way. Some people hate change. Some people love change. It depends on your mindset and how you perceive risk. I have been involved in a lot of change, both personally and professionally, and I think most people have. I'd like to say it was all planned and optimistic, but most of it was unplanned and opportunistic. Even so, I like to think there are subtler forces at work. <laughs> I, I think, like I said in a previous post, that we can look at a life of experience and see the patterns. And from these patterns, we can seek to understand what is the nature of change. Change, as it turns out, follows a natural course, a repeating pattern that once you understand, you can use to your advantage by putting your energy into the right places. In my career, I have been a consultant at points in time, and as a consultant, I would go into organizations around the world and be responsible for introducing new systems and processes and change. I know firsthand what makes for a successful implementation of change and what makes for a failure to change. Organizations make the decision to introduce new systems and processes to create positive change. Typically, this positive change is intended to produce something good, like a less cost or more revenue or avoiding some impending negative event. And what's going on here is that they are purposely injecting a change into a stable system in an effort to get to a different and better future state. Sound familiar? What I saw when I worked in these implementations of change was the following standard common repeating phases. First was the honeymoon phase, where everyone was excited and positive about the change. Nothing much had actually changed yet. And everyone stayed sort of wide-eyed and hopeful, drinking the Kool-Aid about how great the new state of things was going to be. But of course, there would be fence-sitters and Luddites pretending to go along and looking for opportunities, signs of failure that they could pounce on and say, I told you it wouldn't work. Then secondly, the second phase would be the point where you actually throw the switch on the new system or process, and everything starts going to hell. <laughs> People aren't familiar with it, and the learning curve takes a bit to catch up. 
The fence sitters start warming up their I told you so's. The sponsors get called into uncomfortable meetings. I get emergency phone calls in the middle of the night, and executives make frowny faces. I call this the trough. And the third phase is the recovery and growth phase as people start to come up the learning curve, internalize the new systems, and all the indicators start pointing up, up, and away. There is much rejoicing, I get a bonus, and a plane ticket to the next client conflagration. Fourth and finally is the new state. Eventually, the new process is totally internalized by the organization, it stabilizes, and becomes the new normal. Everyone forgets about the pain, and management starts looking for its next dose of positive change to start the process all over again. So what's the takeaway for us here? Why do we care? Because all the change in your life is basically like this. You'll go through these four phases. And whether the change is something you proactively undertake or something forced upon you by circumstance, it's very similar. And when you're in the trough of despair, which is what some of the analysts call it, you need to understand what's happening and what you can do about it. The actions that you take and the attitude that you have will directly impact three important aspects of this change curve, those being the depth of that trough, the length of that trough, and the height of the new stabilization level. So in business and in life, this all equates to value and the time it takes to get to that value. If you want the trough to be small and brief, if you want the new state to encapsulate the most potential fullness, then you have to understand and actively manage the change process. So what are the attributes of teams and people who successfully manage change? Well, number one, you need to be committed and own the change. You have to own the results. It isn't someone else's project. It isn't someone else's change. It's your life. It's your change. You need to own it. Secondly, you need to understand that there will be a trough. Things will get worse before they get better. Change is hard. And the amount of commitment, energy, and just plain honest hard work that you apply during the trough will shorten it. It'll make it easier. Thirdly, you need to keep your eyes on the prize. Good leaders do this. They keep reminding everyone of the prize. Keep reminding yourself of the future state. You need to know that it will get better. There is hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And when you're in the weeds and the turmoil of the trough, you can lose sight of the goal. So keep your eyes on the prize. And finally, celebrate your successes. When, when you've battled free of the trough and making your way to that better state, you know, take some time to rejoice. And that's the nature of change, which was the first thing I wanted to talk about. But aren't we always changing? There are some change events that stand out in your life, like taking a new job, but really life is just one long spectrum of change. And when you get to that new job that you wanted, you soon realize that it's still just a job. Like one of the Ramones said, being a rock and roll singer is a pretty good job, but it's still a job. Change is a transition between states. And I find in my life that after a transition and after I work my way through that trough, that I'm soon unsettled again, looking for the next thing, hankering for some kind of new change. And some people call this phase thrashing. Thrashing is that state of uneasiness between transitions that allows you to build up enough energy to move through the next transition and the next change. 
And thrashing is perfectly okay. No one is 100% happy with everything. You only stop changing in this life when your body dies. So step back and understand that it's okay to change, and it's okay not to change, and it's okay to thrash between changes. These are all natural things. And I will tell you my own experience with change. I have found that my greatest career and personal growth has come with change. And I will tell you that the bigger the perceived risk, the more valuable that change has been. The bigger the challenge, the larger the personal growth, even if you fall short of the goal. And I have on more than one occasion taken pay cuts to move into roles where I thought there was more opportunity. I have started companies. In these cases, the trough was a time of uncertainty, but a time of high personal growth. I put myself in these high change states to force myself to grow and work and succeed. And I discovered that not being afraid of change, not being afraid of high-risk situations, being able to operate and focus in high-risk, high-noise environments is an incredible asset to possess. And it allows you to step into the fray with a self-confidence, a knowledge that no matter what, you bring yourself and your immutable competencies to that game. So being a skilled player at the change game, understanding the change curve and the transitional nature of change will give you an advantage and lead you to better results and deeper learning. And that's pretty cool. So what's the third way? <laughs> the third way is a bit of a sort of Buddhist concept that I'm going to misrepresent here. And it comes down to the way you ask those questions. In the opening paragraph, I told the story about the person who asked whether they should keep their current job or take the new job. And that's a very constraining way of asking that question. When you limit the universe of solutions to such a small set, you're eliminating an infinite number of other potential solutions or choices. This person could stay or change or go to culinary school to become a chef or become a rodeo clown or a best-selling author or an astronaut. What the heck? Why are they phrasing their choices in such a way as to predetermine the solution? Choices are never black and white. They're never either or. In choice and in change, there's always a third way. So take the time to step back and consider the third way. And get out of your box. Make your changes count. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, Matt? Let me tell you this right up front. I felt a certain simpatico relationship with you right off the bat. This is the first thing in your book was Phil Esposito and Bobby Orr in the 1970s Bruins. So you and I are exactly the same age, same generation, and I was right there with you with Bobby Orr, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. One of the things I really enjoyed is all the parallels, right? Yes. I'll tell you what, we could spend the whole podcast just talking about that great era of hockey. I know, but why would a guy <laughs> from Minnesota be watching the Boston Bruins? Think about it. I mean, you had Bobby Orr, you had Phil Esposito, Derek Sanderson, you had the Montreal Canadiens who were trying to just dominate. Guy Lafleur. I mean, yeah, Guy, Guy Lafleur. Yeah, but you had Keith Magnuson, right? Is that right? Well, Who's that the Blackhawks? 
can't remember. That, that was a black house. 50 years ago. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> um, but yeah, we could go on and on about the hockey. But yeah, you're right. There's a there's a direct connection there. People like people uh, like you are the reason why those guys had to move to Dallas. Oh, don't go there with me. <laughs> that still hurts. I bet it does. It does. So Matt, you uh, you published a book uh, like this week as we speak right now. So yeah, actually it was yesterday, Chris. So give me. Give <laughs> I haven't slept since. Yeah, give me the uh, the 200 words or less. Give me the pitch. Okay, the book's called Life Song, and it's running for my life. And basically what it was is I grew up, without giving too much of the story, I grew up, my mother was brutally murdered back in 1970. Eventually, long story short, because I don't want to get into the details, but feeling that it, I was the guilty one in the whole scenario of her death, I actually went to drugs, turned to drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, you name it, it went into this body. That's how I live my teenage years. I live to die instead of, of course, my book is running for my life now. In less than 10 more words, it was one heck of a ride. It was an unsolved murder that I write about. The gentleman, they had the gentleman all the way up to the state of South Dakota, but they couldn't capture any evidence. She was found murdered in Wyoming. So she had left home when I was seven and a half years old. They never uh, found the murderer, so he walked the streets the rest of his life. And it, to this day, it tears me up. So your your life was just pulled apart when you were very young. You know, not to have an Oprah moment, but, I mean, you lost your grandpa, who you loved. You lost, you know, your brothers drifted away. Your your family just sort of dissolved, and you were, you were set adrift. And the book is sort of about how you found yourself, right? How you went very deep to the to the bottom and then, and then found yourself. But... You know, there's several themes in this book. There's a lot going on in this book, Matt. There's murder, drugs, running, God, you know, the army, death, life, resurrection, nudism. You know, how do you tie all that together with a narrative? As a young kid, you didn't realize what was going on. So when people put you in these situations, I mean, when I was eight years old, I was led into a nudist colony in Minnesota. And I actually was, I thought that was normal. I really did. And ironic or not, it was with my mom's brother, which that's another whole story that we could spend a, uh, another podcast. But I thought all these things were normal. And then all of a sudden drugs were brought into my situation and sex. And I mean, we lived in, the, in those times where it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was normal for me. So it was actually a normal life. I thought everything was supposed to be that way. Right. You know, how are all these things connected? How do you draw a line, a lifeline, if you will, that connects all these things, right, that forms your life? As I look back on my life, I really see how a young kid who was never told why his mom ever left. And so as I would run the trails or as I would run, you know, any marathon that I've ever run or Leadville or um, any of my ultras that I've run, all these thoughts would would go through your head, but it was actually a release, yeah. you know, to where it was like freedom. Does that kind of make yeah. sense? Yeah, did you find writing the book the same sort of release? No doubt, no doubt. Because even, you know, even now you, you think back and you go, wow, was it really my fault that my mom left home? Was it my fault that if, if I would have done something different, would the outcome have been different? And yeah, would I be here now to this day? Yeah, yeah, well, you never know, right? Life's a journey. 
And then you you tie it together with a bunch of music lyrics, right? And I think you explain in an aside at one point how the music is sort of the the underlying connection throughout the process. And of course, I know all the lyrics to all the songs that you're that you have in the book, right? With that, I'm not an advocate of earbuds while I run, but there was times, and there still is times when I just have that mood, and I know all runners out there do. We have that mood where it's like, you know what, I just want to put something in that brings back some memories or a good tune to get motivated to. And again, a lot of times I would throw some of those tunes out I wrote about in the book in my head, and I would just have these, you know, spiritual moments out on the trails. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. You have epiphanies. No doubt. You know, you talked a little bit about the the 70s and, and what it was like living in the 70s. And I think our generation, which is the tail end of the baby boomers, we weren't the baby boomers. We were like the the people who came after the baby boomers. Um, and, you know, the baby boomers had the 60s, which is all, you know, free love and drugs and innocence and and stuff. But after that, it was just drugs and bad stuff. You know, it was sort of a 70s were sort of a dirty hangover from that 60s stuff. Yeah. I remember watching my older brother sitting in corners. I wrote about it a little bit about my brother, Mark. He was actually on heroin at the time. And I would look at him, you know, I'm a, at this time, I'm probably a nine or 10 year old kid maybe. And I'm looking at him going, wow, what the heck is going on with this world? But then as a young kid, you think, well, maybe this is the way life is supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it influences you that way. This book is not really about running. (laughs) So what do you think this book is about? That's the next one. This book is about a young kid who was trapped. And I'm trying to explain to the reader that basically this is how I felt. And these are the things that I went through to recover from this chain guy that I write about, who I actually last night on the book release, I wrapped myself in a thick chain. It was it was heavy. I probably had about a 50-pound chain wrapped around me speaking to these people. And they probably all were thinking, what is wrong with this guy? But that's actually how I felt. And so what I'm trying to portray in the book is how I was released from that chain and how I was transformed. And one thing that not only spiritually did I draw a connection with God, but I drew a connection to nature. Yeah. How so? I think it's getting out on the trails, getting out on the trails and listening to the wind blow past your ears and the birds and signing a a Leadville 100 trail release that says, you know what, you're going to have mountain lions and you're going to have cliffs and rocks and things falling down on you, lightning strikes, and you go, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. This is what (laughs) life's about. Life is about being trapped and chained and Life is about being free and and living each moment for the moment. Yeah, I'll tell you, I was out on the trail today with my dog, who's a kindred spirit of mine, and I'm coming back from an injury. I got a couple of those moments where I get to stretch it out and do a little couple of little surges, and I just felt like I was flying. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's like you're floating. I mean, you're out on the trail, and I actually, I don't want to promote anything, but I'm trying some Hoka Ona Onas right now. Yeah. And... I don't know if you've ever wore these. No, things. I haven't. Oh, my gosh. It's almost like you're floating. The hokas. Yeah. You bound over these rocks or branches or roots. And I actually thought to myself, I, I was out on the trail and I was like, these are crazy. You know, but I wanted to try something different because I went minimalist for the longest time. 
And I wanted to try something different. So I tried the, because I heard great reviews and I've run with people with them. They're the funniest looking things, but boy, I got to say, they feel good out there. Yeah, these are, people don't know what these are. These are those uh, moon shoes with the, I don't know, couple couple inches of cushion on the bottom, soft cushion on the bottom. Yeah, and the advantage, I think, with those is on a land, on a midfoot strike, when you're landing, your next step is almost like Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, or, you know, or, or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, when they're at the line and they're coming in. Yeah. That's what it almost feels so like. So you get a good, it springs you up in the air. Yeah, they're crazy. Yeah. Well, I'll try some of those out. Sounds cool. Funniest looking things in the world, though, you know? How do you think running can transform people's lives? I think not only running, Chris, but I think any form of exercise, whether you're walking, running, you're getting outside of your body, whether it's a one-mile run or whether it's a 100-mile ultra. I think it's once you're on the outside and you can actually get into that moment of reflection and looking at yourself because you're all by yourself. And I I really believe with all my heart that you can really come to – really good connections with with not only with your nature or with uh, your God or whoever, but it's getting in touch with yourself and your feelings. So it's almost like transcendental meditation. No doubt. Yeah. No yeah. doubt. And that's that's how I would uh, that's how I would explain it as well. And I and I know some people don't get that, but that's you know, it's just the way it is. You're right, because people will ask us. They'll look at us and say, why do you guys do what you do? Isn't it torture? And it's like, no, it's freedom. Yeah, it's free. Yeah, you're flying. No doubt. So, you know, how were you able to transform your life? Well, I challenged myself when I was about 22 years old. After when I went into the military, I watched. I don't remember the gal's name, but she you might remember her name. But she came across. It was. I believe it was either New York Marathon or Boston Marathon where she came across and she was crawling to the finish line. Huh. I wish I could remember her. Well, I remember there was there was the lady from the Iron Man around that time who did that, who kept falling down and then crawled across the finish line. Yes, that's happened, too. But I had seen that and I, I told myself, you know what? What a huge challenge. I'd love to run a marathon just to say I could do it. Well, I ran my first marathon, Twin Cities Marathon. And you cross that finish line, and I guess I could say it could be for any race, but my first race was a marathon. And you cross that finish line, and it's like no other feeling you can ever experience, ever. So I told myself, I'm going to run one marathon in my life. I'm going to call it good after that. Well, we know the story from there. I mean, it's almost like the biggest addiction. It's the best drug addiction you can have. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting analogy because I've talked to, you know, the back on my feet people a couple of times where they are basically replacing drug use with running as a drug use. And I, and I asked them if that concerns them. Do you, do you see that? You know, it's sort of a running as a replacement therapy, a, a methadone therapy for drug addicts. No, I actually don't. I I actually think that if you take it in stride and when you get injured, back it down. I mean, you it's it's just like anything in life. If if you consume in moderation, I think life is good. I think it's when you abuse. That's when you're going to get in trouble. And you read a you know, you read a lot about runners who overdo it, and next thing you know, they're done. They go into burnout stage, you know. Yeah. So I really think that moderation and 
not only that, but when you're out there, whether it's a trail run or whether it's a road race or just you going out to run, you go out there with not I have to run, but I want to run. And if you go with that mentality, again, it's freedom. Yeah, when it starts feeling like work, that's when I know I'm doing too much. Right. And, and that's when you back it down and you go, okay, let's let's uh, refocus here and look at something different in our training method or go out and bike a little bit, you know? You just talked about running your first marathon. You said you did that when you got out of the military? No, actually it was in 2008 was when I ran my first marathon. I got out of the military in 1984 or 1987. I'm sorry. I went in in 1984 and I actually had my family, two beautiful kids, beautiful wife, raised the kids. They're all both grown and gone and I miss them to death. But you know, that's the way life is. I have a beautiful grandson who all these guys are miracles, you know, for, from what I went through in my life, from the massive drug use to near death experience. And I think something I do want to portray to the audience is I used to do two packs of cigarettes a day. I sat on top of a gas can and breathed that in for a couple of hours before my buddy's stepdad came and pulled us off of that. So these are the things that went into my body. So now when I run, I just, I'm like so thankful that I can. Yeah, I, I think that's, you hit the hit the nail on the head. You know, one of the things I was asked for some advice for uh, beginner runners recently, and I, I think one of the things I will tell them is, you know, when it starts to get hard, just stop and think about how lucky you are to be doing what you're doing. And that'll make you smile. Absolutely. I remember the first time I went out because I had actually signed up for the Twin Cities Marathon without any training whatsoever. I had, I believe I had around eight months to train. And I remember my first half a block. <laughs> I thought, what did I get myself into? I was dying, yeah. you know? Yeah. And But you didn't yeah. quit, right? And I, and I sensed in you that you're a bit of a survivor. So tell me why is it important not to quit? If there's one thing I've learned in, in the ultra community is, and in life, I guess, is if you just look one step at a time, and if you take life at one step at a time, running at one step at a time, walking, and you're not looking way off into the distance, but you're looking right in front of you, your next step, and you go, okay, I just have to make it to that next leaf or that next tree. And if you do that, not only in life, but with any habit that you have, and you say, okay, I can have a victory with, with either running or a bad habit or whatever, if you look at it in the short term, it's like Ken Clobber said at uh, Leadville. You know, he said you're better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. And I, th I think I live that. Yeah. So just uh, shorten the horizon. It makes it a lot easier. Don't think about the finish line. Think about the next telephone pole. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Even in your training, you know, when you're a new runner or, or, or whatever, it's one step at a time. And if if it's not going good that day, guess what? Tomorrow's going to be a better day. It really is. Yep, there's always tomorrow. And, you know, mm -hmm. people, uh, I, I've gotten much better at injuries. You know, I was injured for a good 18 months this time, but I'm coming back because I knew all along that I'd be back. Well, I got really nervous because I was injured, like I had told you um, before we fired up for Pikes Peak. I got really nervous because this was a race that I had been looking forward to the Pikes Peak Marathon, I had been looking forward to this race forever. And I had the top of the foot pain that if any of your listeners know of a cure 
feel free to send that to me because even now, six, five, six months later, I'm still feeling the effects of that injury. Yeah, but you ran the uh, Pike Chic uh, Marathon anyhow. It's a pretty marathon. <laughs> if you ever want to experience a beautiful trail, that's one of them. I actually spent a lot of time up there writing Life Song on the bar trail. Oh, okay. I just go up there. I remember one time going up there. It was uh, January 3rd. I was the only one out there. There was nobody else out there. There was like a foot of snow alongside the trail, but they had cleared the trail because every New Year's they go up to the top in memory of Fred Barr, and I believe that was his name, Fred Barr, whatever, Mr. Barr, and they blow off fireworks just in honor of him. Well, they had the trail clear. I went up there, and it was almost like heaven. It was the peaceful quietness, but yet as I look around, I'm seeing mountain lion tracks and <laughs> knowing these critters are looking at me yeah yeah it sounds sounds yep. beautiful yep and i guess what i want to share with the listeners is you can grab a trail you can grab a road just look way deep inside yourself and examine yourself and if you can look at yourself and be confident in the way you feel and the way you treat your fellow human beings and make differences in people's lives, man, you're going to be victorious. That's good advice. You know, there was a point where your trail could have led a different place, all right? There was a fork in the road in your life where you had your shotgun in your hand, and, and you, were going to, uh, you were going to end it. But something happened. So what happened? Well, I don't know if I want to get into that. <laughs> and you could, in, in general... What happened? In general, in general, believe it or not, I was freed by the power of nature. I really was. And most people look at me and say, you know, you probably wouldn't have pulled the trigger. But at the time when I was in that situation, I had no drugs left. I was smoking the ends of a cigarette, but probably the filter portion of the cigarette. But I was smoking the resin out of a pipe, just, just something to keep keep the, the drugs in my system. I had $5 left in my name, a box of macaroni cheese and cheese in the cupboard. Now you can mix uh, macaroni and cheese with water. But back then, of course, we had to use milk. Didn't have any milk. I'm out of money. Life is not looking good at all. I thought I had it all figured out, but I did. I came up with a plan. I said, you know what? I'm going to go. I lived about 30 miles away from Minneapolis at that time. I said, you know what? I'm going to go into the cities, work a job, get some money, and previous to that, I had lost my job from smoking weed on the job. It was a great job. So I thought, yep, great plan. I'm going to go to the cities. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, get a job, get paid that same day. I'll get my drugs, my cigarettes. Everything's going to be good. Well, that night, lo and behold, a snowstorm came through, just like you're going to see here in a few hours in your area. And the next day when I tried to get out of my driveway, I couldn't move my vehicle. So the forces of evil really moved in on me at that point. And I'd had with life and I was about 10 feet below, buried deep in life stress. All the things came upon me, the murder of my mom, my grandpa not being part of my life taken away from me my grandmother being taken away from me, my friends, my best friends dying right next to me because of the drugs. And it all came to a head at that point where I almost took my life. And I don't want to share that portion of it because I think that's really the, the, the portion of the book where I want people to understand that there's miracles can happen. And 
anyhow, here I am today sharing with you the victory of not only do I have a beautiful family, but I have a great, healthy lifestyle. Yep. So uh, so where do people get the book? Okay. Lifesongbook.com is my website. It's being sold on Amazon. It's, it's going to be on uh, Barnes & Noble. But Lifesongbook.com is the website where they can get the book. It's in a Kindle format right now. It's in uh, paperback format. I'm actually, if they have questions or like you had questions on certain things, like you had said to me, looks like you've set it up for a second book. I actually did. And I'm glad you captured that as the reader because <laughs> that was my whole point. Well, great. So what, what are your plans for the spring, Matt? Got anything going on? Anything good cooking? Well, I want to get this foot healthy. So if any of the listeners have this top of the foot injury pain, it's almost like a plantar fasciitis on the top of the foot. If they've got a remedy for that, I'd appreciate it. It's healing, but I don't want to go and overdo it. But I really believe the mountain training that I did messed it up. Yeah. Um, it's just getting back into form because I'm planning on the uh, 50K Equinox in, in Anchorage, Alaska. All right. Good for you. Well, I'm going to qualify for Boston this year. That's so cool. <laughs> That's a dream race of mine as well. Yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> all right, man. We'll talk to you later, all right? Thanks for the chat. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks again for the opportunity, and run, run, live, baby. Yeah, yeah. Stay in touch, all right? Sounds good. You too. Talk to you later. Ciao. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Transcending the workout. I was well into the tempo part of my step-up run. And this was the end game and the apex of this workout. I'd been running for over an hour. The treadmill was whining. The sweat was flying. I could feel the fatigue and my quads nagging at me. I could see my heart rate starting to spike as the effort of maintaining that pace beat on me. It was like a full bag of wet sand dragging me down. And then I decided to turn it around. Then I decided to focus. And then I transcended the workout. These workouts are the bread and butter of my current training program, although in these days of vegans and paleo people, I guess they'd be the raw almonds and kale of my training program. It starts with a 10-minute warm-up to shake out the heart rate, open up the muscles, get the blood flowing, and then I settle into an easy zone 2 heart rate effort level for another 10 minutes. Then we shift gears into zone 3 for 30 minutes, Zone 3 is close to my marathon goal pace. It's not so bad. It's sustainable, but it starts to be work after a while. And then the fun starts. After the half hour in Zone 3, we step up to a Zone 4-5 effort. This is 10 to 15 seconds faster than my goal race pace. And it's a hard effort, right on or a little bit into my aerobic threshold. That point where I'm working harder than I can maintain, on the edge. And this is the money part of the workout. These train me to hold race pace and to familiarize my machine with the discomfort and effort at the end of a race. And this step-up part of the step-up run, it is an exquisite workout with a long runway to the money part. Like a pressure cooker. Or one of those old torture devices where they keep turning the screws a little tighter until something pops. It's a great workout, 
and it works well to get you physically and mentally race fit. But it's not about effort or going to your fail. It's about learning to manage your machine during a high effort level. Your machine is the body and the mind. Your machine is the form and the mental focus. And your success depends on being able to step outside and above the effort and manage your machine, manage the effort dispassionately to transcend the workout. I've been back into training for just a few weeks, months, slowly building my fitness up since around December to get ready for Boston. And my baseline goal is to get to the starting line. My A goal is to requalify. I decided to do this workout on the treadmill because it's easier to manage your heart rate on the treadmill. If you need a lower heart rate, you turn the speed down. If you need a higher heart rate, you turn the speed up. And at this point in my recovery, I'm still trying to figure out where my machine is after 18 months of time off from running. It takes a few weeks for everything to stabilize, and it takes a few weeks to get an idea of what your fitness for running is. What am I talking about when I say manage my machine and transcend the effort? Well, this is an ability that comes with consistent training. This is another of the tools that you learn and can bring with you into your goal races. It's a major milestone in your training when you're able to achieve this in a workout. It signals a level of race fitness and should give you great confidence. I'm particularly proud of this workout because it was a watershed and a potential leading indicator of my return to race fitness. So back to our story. I was well into this hour and 20 step up run. I had 12 minutes left to go in my zone three step, a little more than halfway through the total workout. I had made a conscious effort in this one to ease into the workout slowly, ratcheting up the pace one notch at a time and letting my heart rate stabilize before stepping up again. When I had attempted to do this workout the previous week, I was too aggressive and my heart rate kept spiking, causing me to have to slow down and recover. So tonight, this night, I eased into it. And your heart rate will creep up as you progress through a long workout due to the accumulated stress, but it shouldn't spike. It shouldn't go off the scale. When it does this, it means you have, you've lost control of your machine. And I knew that I had a problem coming up in this workout because this particular treadmill, I knew from experience in the gym, automatically stops. It ends the workout at 60 minutes. Why would anyone want to run more than an hour? <laughs> this was a problem because it would slam me into a cool-down routine midway through the diciest part of my workout, and I'd have to be jabbing at the speed buttons and fighting the treadmill right when I was needing to focus. This was solved when I caught the headphone cord on my iPhone with a backswing and sent it flying, skittering off the back of the treadmill, and this forced me to dismount and go fetch it, and I took this as an opportunity to reset the workout on the treadmill to avoid that 60-minute curfew. And it also allowed me to set the headphone distraction aside, put that down, and focus on closing the workout. And this was turning out well. And after a brief break to reset, I was back on the treadmill, finishing up those last 12 minutes of my Zone 3, and ready to confront the Zone 4-5 beast for an additional 20 minutes before my cooldown. And I jabbed at the buttons and switched into that 20 minutes of Zone 4-5, and I focused on my form, leaning at the ankles, running tall, pushing my hips forward, 
landing with fast, light feet, chin up, smile, elbows back, hands high and loose, no extra rotation, no extra pitch or yaw. All my focus was on moving forward as efficiently as possible. But I was tired. It had been a long day at the client. Here it was, close to 8.30 p.m., and I was starting to fade. My mind began to wander. The effort seemed hard. The weight of the run, like a wet sandbag, pulled my shoulders down. Those voices started telling me how much it hurt and how I should ease up a little. I was five minutes into the 20-minute step up, and my heart rate was climbing. Up out of zone four, into zone five, I was starting to spike and go anaerobic. You can't start fighting the workout. Once you start fighting the workout, you lose it. The energy it takes to fight the workout causes a system overload, and it's hard not to fight the workout. Our tendency, when it gets hard, is to fight back, to work harder, to throw ourselves at it, to rage against the effort. If you can see the finish, this is okay, but if you have 15 minutes left in your race or your workout, it'll burn you up and leave you lying in the road. My rule is no fight in the workout, no fighting the race, until I'm within two minutes of the finish. Once I get under two minutes, I can throw off the blinders and let my animal loose and wantonly spend my remaining race capital pyrrhically in the final push. But... Until then, you have to manage your machine. You can't fight it. Fighting it is a waste of energy. With 15 minutes left and my heart rate spiking and my spirits flagging, I knew what I had to do. I've been there before, at the end of many long workouts and long races, that point where you need to be able to transcend the effort. And here's the trick, or the process. When it gets hard, and you start to lose hope, instead of fighting the effort, Instead of steeling yourself against the discomfort, you relax into it. You accept it and manage it. You transcend. I relaxed. I focused on my form and mechanics, starting at the bottom and working my way up, relaxing the feet and the ankles and the hips and the shoulders and the arms and the hands, consciously focusing the relaxation, like taking off a large coat made up of the stress of the effort and setting it aside, lifting the weight of the workout and relaxing into your pace. And once my form was quiet, I focused on relaxing my breathing and relaxing my heart rate, calming my mind and body within the effort, within the discomfort, not in spite of it. At this point in my transcending of the effort, I will subtly disassociate from my body. My legs cease to be mechanical things. I picture myself as if riding on a magic carpet, gliding through the air. So now I glance down, I look at my heart rate, and it's dropping. No change in speed of the treadmill. At the very end of a long workout, where the effort level was most intense, and my heart rate was steadily coming down. Out of zone 5, dropping to low zone 4 and staying there. Staying there. Until with two minutes left, I steadily increase the pace for a final orgasmic unleashing of effort through the finish, heart rate be damned, to transcend like running in a dream. I'm quite proud of this workout. The ability to step in and take control of my machine when things get hard is a telling moment. 
the ability to transcend the physical effort, to step outside the workout, to impose my will, the power of my intellect on this workout thrills the heck out of me. And this ability gives me a fighting chance at Boston. This is what you should be practicing when you're doing your tempo workouts. It's not about the effort. It's about the relationship between you and your machine. So take off the headphones and crawl inside your workout and train yourself. Learn how to transcend. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. Well then, my snowbound cabin mates, you have successfully navigated to the end of episode 3-255 of the Run Run Live podcast. Hopefully it was a worthwhile investment of time. And you know, I don't tell these stories for you, right? I tell them for me. When I'm trying to convince you of the worthiness of some concept of life and toil and change and balance and commitment and existence. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm trying to convince me. That's a secret. I'm talking to me. So thanks for joining me on this bi-weekly quest for learning and enrichment and perchance transformation. In a couple days, I'll be heading down. Actually, tomorrow. (laughs) Tomorrow, I'll be heading down to run the Martha's Vineyard 20-miler in the snow And it's a nice flat, pretty coarse, but the weather is always a wild card. Looks like it's going to be snowy, rainy, windy. I'll drive down tonight with my wife, stay over at the Cape, and then get up and take the ferry over to the island and run the race on Saturday morning and take the ferry back in the afternoon. I ran 19 miles on the road after the snowstorm last Sunday. It was a little dicey, but I came out of it no worse for wear. And before I forget, I've got some great news. We opened up registration for the Groton Road Races this week. And you can do me a favor and go sign up or just repost it for me. Repost the race notices that I send out to the network. And this is our 23rd year. And believe it or not, I've run every single one. And I'd love to see you and your friends and family out there. You can find the Groton Road Race page on Facebook or go to our website at www.grottonroadrace.com or stalk me on any of the social media outlets and I'll be tweeting about it. Our date this year is Sunday, April 28th. So after Martha's Vineyard, you like it when I say that, don't you? Martha's Vineyard. After Martha's Vineyard, I'm going to um, I'm not going to race anymore until the Eastern States 20 miler, which is usually three or four weeks before Boston. And you're, you may remember last year, this was where my training ended, and I DNF'd at the 16-mile mark and limped off the course at the Eastern States. So if that goes well, if everything hangs together there, I'm off to run Boston on Patriots Day. And I'll be running this year for Team Hoyt, and I'd very much appreciate if you would help me, help them, And change the world by clicking on the donation banner on the right side of my website, my webpage at www.runrunlive.com or in the show notes. And last week I automated the dispersal of the show notes. So every word here and all the hyperlinks to all the pieces, people and topics in each show, it's all there. 
And it seems to have worked well, and the formatting, which was I was a little worried about, seems to have come through unscathed. For you techno-weenies, what I did was to create a template in MailChimp, which is the direct email service provider, and this template auto-magically reads the RSS feed of the, of the podcast page on my WordPress site, and whenever I post a new episode, it puts the content into a newsletter and blasts it out to everyone on that list. Like I said, it's magic. For you non-techno weenies, just sign up for the mailing list and you'll get the episodes in your inbox when I publish them. And you can even bypass iTunes and download the MP3s directly if you want. I haven't been able to produce any more stories for my Kickstarter project to create an audio version of my second book this week. I've been traveling, been really busy. But I'm still working on it. And I've delivered seven chapters for distribution so far. So for a measly $10, you can join the investor list and receive an alert as new chapters roll off the microphone. If you're interested, you can also find that link on my website and in the show notes. So why do I do all this stuff? I suppose I'm either cursed or blessed with a restless mind. It's like when people ask you, why do you run? Why not? Because I can. So what are you waiting for? What do you get to lose? Take that for a step. Start something that scares the hell out of you today. And I will see you out there. Thank you for riding along. My name is Chris, and that is CYKT Russell on all the social media and email systems. The podcast is free for you because I like doing it. So it is only your internal moral compass that will compel you to let me know what you think by leaving a comment on my website at www.runrunlive.com. Or even better, if you want to change my world, check out my books in regular Kindle or audio format. The links are on my website and in the show notes. And if you want to be kept in the loop, you can sign up for the email list on runrunlive.com as well. I will send you the show notes. So remember, love life, do epic stuff, and I'll see you out there. (laughs) 